0: Has anybody here felt any emotions this morning? Here's a good one: Did you wake up into feeling an emotion? Anybody? Who here wakes up happy? Oh my goodness, I'm breaking the tenth commandment so bad right now. Um, and who here here maybe habitually wakes wakes up having to fight for encouragement? Okay. G- What? Really? Okay. We got that in common. That's awesome. That's more common in my experience. Last week, I started a sermon series that I wanted to call Emotions Remastered. And the big idea is to remind the church and to preach to the church that our emotional lives are just as meant to come under the lordship of Jesus... To be discipled by Jesus and transformed by Jesus as every other part of our lives. No, we can look to wanting to have our financial lives transformed, to be under God's blessing and to be faithful with our spending and earning and our givings. Does anybody anybody done that? We can look to do you know, more evangelism or participate with missions and to see our lives changed to serve Jesus and be his disciples in the world. We can want more skills and equipping with parenting, to be godly parents, all kinds of things. But we, I think at least in my life, rarely think that this huge part of just existing, our emotional life, is something that is meant to be ruled over by God for good. And that that's actually the best life. And one of the things I was saying is that in our culture, we tend to see our emotions as something that kind of just happens. And when it's just happening, the more kind of freedom, the better. The the less interference in our emotional life, the better. The more we can just be ourselves, the better. And I'm not attacking that. Just for me, I would define our true emotional self as the self that is most like Jesus. Because we are in life and in eternity in the process of becoming our true selves as we're made more and more and more like our creator who loves us, And knows who he always intended for us to be. And knows where he's taking us. And even now perceives what we are going to look like, sound like, and be like in glory. So he knows. Jesus in love knows our true self. And he knows our true emotional self. What we're supposed to be like. And we're all going to be different. Because God wants to show his variety in life. Through all his little pictures of himself in the church. And so this is part of our vision statement. I just want to keep familiarizing ourselves with this. We went through the process as Calvary Chapel in the old building before we had the world grind to a screaming halt with the COVID time. and We spent some time looking over vision statement. I just want to read for it again. If you're part of Calvary Chapel or you're interested in Calvary Chapel, this is what we think we're doing. This is what we hope to be doing. Of course, like many things, we rarely live up to our best intentions, but this is our mission. We live to love and worship God to multiply passionate and obedient disciples of Jesus Christ, and to proclaim the kingdom by his word and the Holy Spirit. And this Emotions Remastered series is meant to work specifically, all of these things are touched, but specifically on creating passionate and obedient disciples of Jesus, that our emotional lives would obey Jesus. And again, if I say, we want your emotions to obey Jesus, and you're a bit discouraged or afraid, uh, Maybe you need to tweak who you think Jesus is. Because usually when Jesus gets his way, it's the best way. When we talk about emotions being remastered, the word master in English is really kind of cool. You can talk about a master and it means like the biggest, like the master bedroom. is usually the biggest bedroom in the house, correct? And a master can mean somebody who owns something, somebody who rules over a thing. They're the master of the house, and the Bible talks about that. But a master also includes somebody who's like the best at something. A master guitarist, a master artist, a master builder. You want those people to be building your house. You You don't want me to build a house for you. Please know... It'll be the end of our relationship and probably your financial stability. You want a master to be doing renovations in your house. You want a master to be doing artwork if you commission them. You want somebody who's the best at doing something. And I want to encourage you today when it comes to this inner life that we all have. Jesus is the master of transforming people. He's the best at it. He's the best at working with us. And he's the best at getting us where we're meant to go. He's got skills to cause thrills and pay the bills and give you chills. He's the master. And so I'm just I'm doing some groundwork here. If anybody's feeling a little uncomfortable with this whole premise, I, I, I want to invite you to just ask the question, who else would you want to give your heart to? And then we kind of go, oh, well, well, no one. Right. Now we're on the same page. So, today I want to, and I could be wrong. I'm I'm a five, I think about things, so I always hedge my bets with words. But I could be wrong, but I think that this might be the most important sermon you ever hear in your life. As far as actually doing you practical good and changing things, and helping you to be empowered in your calling, and fulfilling that whole perspectives call, I think that this may be the most important message you ever hear. You guys are such a great audience. A hundred years ago, people would be throwing chairs at me already. I want to talk today about receiving trials from the Lord. James 1, starting in verse 2, says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. Enjoy your trials. Enjoy the trials that the Lord sends you. Everyone here today, in this room, and on the internet, you have trials from the Lord. But you probably aren't walking through it as from the Lord. Everyone here this morning, and maybe this is the best morning of your life. Maybe the coffee started just at the right time for you to drink it with the maximum smoothness and the least amount of acidity. Maybe you woke up and every single health thing that bothers you in the morning. For me, I feel like I've been worked over with a lead lead pipe from the waist down. and I'm just so stiff every morning for no reason. At least if I were working out, I'd have a good reason to feel stiff. But I'm not, so I'm just like... Oh, hibbity oh, hibbity. Oh. You know, every morning. Maybe maybe you just felt perfectly healthy. Maybe you woke up into your best childhood memories. Maybe you woke up and found out that the lotto tickets that you shouldn't be buying, but they were winners, and so now the rest, you know, Monday morning you're gonna go woo you're gonna go get the big the big pail. Maybe this is your best day ever. For everybody else, you have trials. You have ongoing challenges. You have situations that won't change you have thoughts that persist that aren't a blessing to you you have pains emotional mental spiritual relational that aren't getting better and don't look like they will you have trials we have trials we have things that aren't the way we wish they were when we imagine our easiest life And this morning, I think the thing that will change your life the most is to begin to think of these things as from your good Heavenly Father. Something to walk through with your all powerful Lord for good. They're from the Lord for your good. You have trials. And James has this theology. I used the big word. This is how James knows God. He can go to a group of Christians who, if you read the rest of his letter in James, he's expecting their lives to be absolutely destroyed by persecution coming up. He's warning them, you know, rich people, if you steal your wages from your servants, you're all going to die. He's warning them, and don't not give to the poor because you're going to die. You know, James is the least compassionate of all the apostles. But he starts off his letter to Christians who are being persecuted or about to be persecuted. And he says to them, I want you to train yourselves to start rejoicing when you're going through trials. The people of God ought to think like this. The people of God ought to feel like this. The people of God ought to believe this. The people of God ought to respond like this. This is how you're going to get through what's going on in your life. And I know, for me, I don't live like this. Consider it another discouragement, brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. Because you know all you really want is life to be easy today. End of story. That's my verse. Rob, chapter 1, verse 2. Would your book sound like my book? Why don't we like trials? Why don't we like testings? Why don't we like periods of time that are uncomfortable, painful, sorrow-filled, challenging, challenging to our faith? James even says there in verse 3, you know the testing of your faith. We don't want our faith tested. We don't want our faith rocked. We don't want our faith shaken or stirred. We just want it on the rocks, you know, the rock of Christ. I'm just mixing it up, and James Bond is nowhere supposed to be in here. But we don't want our faith tested. We want to feel like we're full of faith. We don't want our, our thoughts about God challenged and our convictions about life challenged. We don't like it. Do you like it? Put up your hand now, and I won't look at you for the rest of the sermon. We'll see. This is, everybody knows, this is one of those, God's watching, you put up your hand, you're writing a bullseye on your forehead, and your back, and your car, and your house, and everything else. Don't do it. But I want to just, I want to encourage us. I, this has been my life for, for, for weeks and months, trying to deal with the fact that deep down, I'm convicted that my, my, my lived theology is that if life isn't pleasant, there's something profoundly wrong. When the reality is for Christians, as we follow Christ in this life, the only Christian life is filled with fruitful trials. The Apostle Paul in Acts 14 goes around to all his churches and says it is, it is necessary that through various sufferings, we must enter the kingdom of God. The only road to heaven has trials upon trials upon trials. That's the only way home. And the thing that I'm most wrestling with my mind and my heart is to believe the truth that it is good. It's good. It's good to accept these things from a father who loves us. His intentions are 100% good and 100% pure. And as I walk with him through trials, they will produce fruit in my character, in my mind, in my home, in my calling, in my fruitfulness. What God wants to do is profoundly impact the world through a people who accept his trials. Why don't we love trials besides the fact that they're trials? Two things, and this I'll just share personally for me. I don't want to assume that I know how you work because it turns out over life, when you're a pastor, you meet tons of different people that you would never meet otherwise and you realize people are different than you. What? Two things at least that make trials particularly difficult is number one, that in our culture, we tend to see... Difficulties, pains, and sufferings on a completely just worldly plane. When things go wrong, we first ask who's to blame? Is it the government? They're, they're the usual punching bag, right? Or is it someone I live with? They're the next blame punching bag. Or is it me? Then you can do the self-loathing, self-criticizing, self-attacking, self-deprecating, self-despising, self-loathing. I think I hit that one already. You can do the, the attack self thing. If only I were better, if only I were different, if only I were more spiritual, if only I had more money, if only I were stronger, I wouldn't be having these problems. Right? Or if only I didn't have this person in my life, or that person in my life, or if that person would just change. Usually what we do is that when we go into a trial, we want, we want somebody else to change to make the trial to go away. Amen? And it's part of our culture. We live in this secular culture which is kind of convinced that we are one election or one scientific discovery or one people group being punished away from paradise. This is, this is part of where we come from. We can talk about Marxism, we can talk about classical communism, we can talk about leftism, we can talk about all these big words which are, are really dominant in our culture, but one of the convictions of our culture is we are just one person disappearing away from paradise. And so when we don't have our paradise, when we don't have our perfect life now, we need to figure out who we need to get rid of in order to get it. Amen? We totally do it. You see it on Facebook. You unfriends. You you want the perfect life. You need to find the people who tear you down and hold you back, unfriend them, get them off your feed, and then you'll actually have the paradise, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, image-ger thing I don't even know I can't even keep up sorry I'm an old man now I couldn't even set the, the time on VCRs when I was growing up and now you want me to get on TikTok come on but we do that I do that I do that maybe we do that maybe you don't do that I do that I totally do that if I were different or other people were different everything would be great that's not true even if you could manage to have your best, best thoughts now surrounded by your best people now, God would look at you and say, you're not going to bear one even tiny kumquat of fruit for my kingdom. And he'll throw a monkey wrench in it. Did Jesus have the best life from my evaluation? Was he only surrounded by the best people? Did all of his disciples love him and serve him? Were they faithful to the end? Did his people accept him? Did he get all the sleep he wants? Did he have all the finances he wants? No. But did he have the perfect life? Heaven, yeah. And then Jesus says, come and follow me. Come follow me into joy that has nothing to do with your circumstances. Come follow me into love that has nothing to do with your friends. How they're, how they're making you feel. I'm just like... His life was just one long, awesome trial where he was always the happiest person in the room except for Gethsemane. The other thing that can happen is that we can get stuck in a theology that can't imagine that hard things, difficult things, painful things actually come from the Father. We can get stuck thinking... in. Like this is like the, the 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 human issue, but even spiritually, we we can get stuck thinking that in the spiritual realms, God is good, Satan is bad. They often fight. Sometimes God wins. Sometimes Satan wins. I really hope at the end Jesus is comes out on top. We can see the spiritual world as some gigantic WWE. F or WWE exhibition match Hulk Hogan's over on the left side in the bright yellow spandex Andre the Giants on the other side I can't remember what I started with and he's got the big black jobby with the one shoulder strap thing and they're duking it out and you really hope that all the little Hulkamaniacs will clap their hands enough to get the Hulkster strong enough to throw Andre down with the suplex and and God will win that's not reality. God is the Almighty God. Scripture, he, he says, I'm God Almighty. And when you're Almighty, there's no second mighty, there's no runner up mighty, there's no badge, participation badge mighty. Our Father is just as strong and wise. He's just as more strong and more wise and more in control compared to Satan as he is compared to me as he is compared to that frog that got run over on my driveway that was feeding the flies this week. He is as much in control over the forces of darkness as he is everything. That's why he's almighty and all-wise and all-powerful. When you're God, you're God, and there's no runner-up. And so no matter what is happening, God does not have butterfingers on the steering wheel of life. He's always in control. And James, James is wrestling with that when he tells people to count it all joy when they go through trials because he knows the next thing his church is going to say is, I cannot figure out how I'm supposed to have joy in this because it looks like everything's out of God's control. True? True. And that's why the next thing James says is this. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given to him. Because the problem isn't not whether or not God is in control. The problem is that we can't see how he could be in control. And so we lose faith and we don't want to participate with the trial. Amen? And so that's why James says, count your trials as a joy from the Lord to grow your faith And learn steadfastness so that you won't go into life lacking and being incomplete. So that you can face your callings in life complete and lacking, full of steadfastness. Because you've embraced the trials that God has given you. Maybe you don't have the joy. Maybe you can't be happy about it. But maybe you can say, at least I can embrace it. I can say, okay, God, that seems to be from you. How do you want me to respond to you in it? We have such a hard time getting there that he says, well, if you can't get there, you need to ask God to help you with wisdom to be there. Help you understand what, how he works. Help you understand what's going on so that you don't sabotage the good gift that the Father of Heavenly Lights is trying to send down to you by rejecting it. It's like if you go and you buy... I don't know, you go on Amazon and you buy the entire Middle Earth Extended Edition collection, all three Lord of the Rings, all three Hobbits from Amazon. It's on a deal. It's like one of these COVID deals where they know everyone's just going to be sitting around doing nothing for so much, so much time. So everything digital is on sale, and, and you buy it, and it's coming to you, and then the Amazon guy shows up, and it's like that guy from high school who used to give you the wedgies all the time, including the, the atomic wedgie where the underpants went over your head, and you're just like, No! Don't deliver that package to me because I don't like you. True? The trials come through many different situations, and the trials may involve very many different people, but the trials all come from a good father who loves you and wants you to be mature and steadfast and capable to face every single thing God has for you in this life. Don't hate God because you hate the delivery boy. And God knows how to send great gifts through ugly situations. Amen? And that kind of wisdom that I'm talking about right now is what James wanted us to ask for so that we could count it all joy in our trials. Okay. Now that I've prepped us for the message, let's have the message. It's a joke. I love making jokes about the time during the messages. Do you ever notice that? Like every other sermon, I make a time joke. This time the time joke is this. In order to have slides, they can't show me what time it is up there. So, It's a taste of heaven where there is no time. And every moment is better than the last. And you never need to eat. No matter how hungry you get. All right. I want to share with you six good things that God can and by grace will do for you. In trials. In order to make room emotionally for us to see trials as from the Lord and to work with trials and to not reject God because we don't want to go through the training he has for us in life. Okay? Point number one. Trials are God's conveyor belt. In the book of Genesis... There was a guy named Joseph. God's plan was to make him the ruler over the known world and the savior of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, by rescuing them from a famine that was coming. And God even told Joseph that he was going to exalt him over his family and over the world by sending him two dreams. One dream about all his brothers gathering around him, making the sheaves bow down to him, which is a symbolic picture of Joseph becoming the Lord over the food of the world, as well as a picture of Joseph being high above the sun and the moon and all these stars, which was a picture of him being uh, governmentally above his family. And Joseph was pretty stoked about this. The only problem was that God needed to get Joseph into the palace of Egypt. And the offensive thing is that God decided that it would be through his brothers trying to kill him... And selling him as a slave, that he, slave traders would haul him off to Egypt, where he'd get bought by Potiphar and attacked by Potiphar's wife, and wrongly accused of attacking Potiphar's wife so that he could get thrown in prison to go and rot there for years, including being forgotten by the baker and the cupbearer for two more years after he helps them by interpreting their dreams so that he had to wait for Pharaoh to have dreams that he didn't know anything what to do with so that he could get brought into that position of power. Those were desperate, painful, offensive, unjust trials. And they were completely God's good intention to exalt Joseph over the world and save the world and bring Israel into Egypt. And if you look back on your life, you'll probably see that often... Things you would never have said yes to if you had the choice were God's way of getting you where He wanted you to be. This is part of how God works. He gets us where He wants us to be often, not through a dream or not through direction. Those things are good. I want to say yes to your will. Amen. But very often it is through disappointments, it is through rejections. It is through turndowns. It is through catastrophes. Very often, thank you for sitting right there. We have a ministry that we're connected to that was kind of birthed out of Calvary Chapel, mostly through the faithfulness of a couple sitting over here on my left. And what they're doing right now, which is impacting the entire country of Rwanda and will likely impact most of the continent of Africa and beyond, if Dave has his way, all happened because some guy got on an airplane with Ebola. Maybe. And as they were trying to travel from here to Africa, their plane got canceled, and they got stuck in Europe somewhere. Were you happy when that happened? That Ebola man got on that plane, and that plane needed to like, get disinfected for 12 hours before you could get back on that plane and get where you're supposed to go? But you met somebody there, which turned into a lot of what you're doing. It's a trial. And it was one of the best things God could have for you. It just really was frustrating, maybe, at the time. Or even just like getting back on the plane. I know they they said they cleansed it from potential Ebola, but how clean can you get? It's Ebola. Shouldn't you burn the entire airplane? Just get that airplane to the air on autopilot. Have the pilot eject or bail out and just fly that thing into the ocean. It's Ebola. It's Ebola. This is one of the things about trials, whether it's a health trial or a mental trial or a relational trial or a financial trial or a job trial. I think Christians have the right, in the midst of the pain, to say, Father, you're probably taking somewhere. I wouldn't, taking me somewhere I wouldn't choose to go unless you really took over the controls. And I want whatever you have for me. Is that a new thought? It's a good thought. It's a thought I don't often think. Number two, trials make God's word precious. Have you ever noticed that when you're really hurting, the Bible tends to come alive for you? And you start seeing things in God's word that you've read it before, you've scanned your eyes over it before, but you had no clue that that was in there until things started to hurt until you felt really stuck. Psalm 119, which is the longest poem in the Bible, which is all about a suffering man finding his courage and confidence in God, especially in his word. He says, My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Now here's a poet who realizes that the point of his sorrows is to get him into the word. And that line, you know, there's lines in in poetry and scripture that just totally, like, pierce me right in the heart. He says, my soul melts away with sorrow. Have you ever felt your soul melting away with sorrow? This whole inner life that you expect to be there. I expect to be happy about this. I expect to be strong here. I expect to be able to do this or have confidence for this or have initiative for this. And you're going through a trial that's severe and it's so bad that you look inside your heart and it's just not even there anymore. The initiative's gone. The desire's gone. The joy's gone. The hope's gone. It's just, it's, you're just messed up on the inside. That's, that's what I think he's saying. My soul has melted away for sorrow. And then his next line is, strengthen me according to your word. Philippians chapter 4 is a a precious chapter of the Bible for me when I'm in the middle of a trial. Point number three, how God does good for us in trials. And what we can look forward to in the midst of trials is that trials make prayer really precious. Why don't we go to Philippians chapter 4? When things are easy when you're on vacation when everything's easy prayer can become a bit of a chore or it can become something you do in order to be a good person prayer is never supposed to be a chore and it's not supposed to be something you do just to feel good about yourself it's meant to be connecting with god it's meant to be talking with god and in the midst of a trial and paul is in a trial here he's in in philippines he's in jail um he's hurting he's super joyful he's encouraging the church but he's not he's not in a good circumstance and he says in verse four starting verse four some of the most famous lines of scripture rejoice in the lord always again i will say rejoice let your reasonableness be known to everyone the lord is at hand do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your request be made known to god And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so he's giving them prayer instructions. This is about prayer. This is about connecting with God in prayer. And he's got this awesome little line there that, that to me, speaks to him connecting with God in the midst of a trial, and he says, The Lord is at hand. When we bring a broken heart to God in prayer, There's so much more room to experience that the Lord is at hand. My strength is gone. I need the Lord at hand. My wisdom is gone. I need the Lord at hand. My capabilities are gone. The Lord is at hand. My control is gone. The Lord is at hand. And knowing that the Lord is at hand is way better than winning. Being tender in the presence of God is way better than getting things fixed. It's way more precious. That's why he says, hey, why don't you just pray and then drop it? Because when God Almighty is with you and you are experiencing him hearing your prayers, he's God Almighty. Point number four, trials x-ray the soul. It's human nature to think we're doing better than we're doing. It's human nature to think we're more holy than we are, that we're more pleasant than we are, that we're more mature than we are. Amen? Is it just me? My wife's really smiling right now, so I feel... I feel x-rayed. Trials make us see what's really going on in our hearts, and this is one of the greatest gifts about trials. Trials. Because we don't know ourselves very well. We often misjudge ourselves. We often don't see our own emotions. Um, We often don't see where there's traps or, or, or pitfalls in our lives. But God can send a trial along and then all of a sudden you can see, wow, look how I'm responding. Wow, look what I'm doing. I'm a great guy, except for all the cussing people out. Thank you, trial. Amen? I'm a super awesome person, except for how I treat people when I'm angry, except for how I act when I'm stressed, except for how selfish I am when I'm not getting what I want. That is, those moments where the you that you don't see to be you is coming out, is being revealed, is being shown, ultimately is God's good purpose for your life in the midst of a trial. Because God would way rather you see that you have this problem with anger. You have this problem with stress. You have this problem with spending. You have this problem with people. God would way rather see see that you have this problem with maintaining faith when you don't get what you want. You have this problem of faithfulness. You have this problem of commitment. You have this problem of true love. God would way rather you see that that thing is there than let you go on and have a much more catastrophic problem happen later because he just let things go off with you. Look, guys, there are millions of people that wish that somebody had gone and inspected those warehouses in Beirut before the fire started. And it was somebody's job to put that warehouse on trial and go and inspect it and to make sure that that fertilizer was not there because it shouldn't have been there before the fire happened at the warehouse and blew up half a city. And when God sends a trial our way, he is sending his inspector through our lives to go and tell us, fertilizer is meant for growing things, but if there's tons of it here and it starts on fire, it'll blow you up. And so as Christians, when the trial comes and we see that, that the inspector is finding things that don't belong there, we're meant to say, oh, thank goodness. Thank goodness it's being dealt with now and in this situation. Oh, thank you, Lord, for showing this to me. So good. Let me pray about this. Let me respond to you. Instead of getting defensive, let me bow the knee. Instead of getting um, explanatory and explaining things away, why don't I pray that you'll take things away? Amen? Amen? Uh, Young people, my experience is that my my sinful nature only gets worse until it gets dealt with. So if stuff's coming up now, it's totally God loving you. And the, the question is, why don't you take responsibility before the Lord with it? Don't make it about anybody else. Okay, point number five. Trials produce real transformation. Anybody here into like exercise or sports or anything like that? Just a couple? Do you find that you change when you do the least amount of exercise or practice? Or do you find that things change when you do the most amount of exercise and practice? Which one? somebody this is the interactive portion of your message this is so i can say that i didn't just talk the whole time most thank you just impatient just kidding no you're helping me edit that part out of the internet it's usually when you punish your body physically that it responds the most with growth amen Or when you put the most amount of time into just shooting the free throws, 100 a day, 500 a day, 1,000 a day, until the ball goes through the hoop by second nature. And when it comes to real soul transformation, we change very slowly and often very superficially unless there's pain involved. Any older saints here? Isn't that often true? That unless you really feel out of control, or you really feel desperate, or you really feel like there's some suffering involved, we change very slowly and often only superficially without a real trial. One online theologianist says, if you really want to change, why don't you ask God for a specific trial to change that part of you and then say thank you when it shows up? That's red meat theology right there. Don't we often want to change by having good things come our way? When it's usually the trial that does the trick. Ouch. And finally, trials prove our love for the Lord in front of people. One of the greatest trials in all of Scripture is the story of Job. You might remember this. Job was the most holy guy alive in his generation so much so that you know speaking of dancing over people greg satan showed up to heaven one day and god started doing his boastful dance of joy over job have you considered job there's nobody like him in the whole world he just really honors me and he really feels fears the lord and god's just doing his proud dad boogie over job but satan says something which we need to hear He says, doesn't Job just serve you because of the good things you do for him? Satan is a cynic, but he also understands sinners. People will serve the Lord if the payout's right. If the gravy chain keeps pouring out, we won't leave the God buffet as long as the turkey keeps showing up. You don't have to be saved to be happy to be a Christian as long as it means more money, more praise, And you get to sing some songs. And you'll get to look good. And so Satan says, God, I don't believe he actually loves you. And so God says, Okay, do what you want to do. Essentially, approving a trial. And yes, Satan was the delivery boy. But God was the source of of, of the goodness coming to Job through this trial. And so Satan afflicts him. He takes all his possessions away, all his kids die in a day, and his wife shows up and says, why don't you just kill yourself? And Job doesn't do it. And then they have another one of these things where God says to Satan, Satan comes to heaven one day, and God says to Satan, so Job's doing a good job. I let you afflict him. He hasn't renounced me. He's maintained his integrity. And Satan says, well, you haven't taken away his health yet. And so God says, okay, a trial on top of a trial. On top of a trial, on top of a trial, on top of a trial. Every trial possible. Every trial imaginable. The family loss trial. The physical pain trial. The wife telling you she wishes you were dead trial. That's a trial. The losing all your possessions trial. The feeling like God's abandoned you trial. And the friends showing up and telling you this is probably all your fault trial. All the trials for Job. And the whole question of the entire book and all of Job's life is, can God just find one person who will still love him when the gravy train isn't pouring out? And this is one of the things of your trial in your life. Your trials are your best opportunity to show God that you love him and to glorify the Father By letting people see that Christians can still love God even when things aren't going good. And we don't want the trials. We want the trials to go away so that we can show people we love God with success. Or with things going well. Or with the testimonies of how good Jesus is. And the miracle healings. And that's all fine. But listen to me. There are people out there who will not believe that stuff. Until they see Christians still loving Jesus, when things are going so bad, when someone looks at your life and says, "I would hate God if I were you, how come you still love him?" such a great opportunity to show us to show the Lord that we we're growing in our love for him or that we do love him that we're growing in our trust for him that we do trust him when it's just so bad but you just say i'm i'm going to choose to receive this situation as a trial from you dad i know that romans 8 28 says that that we know that you work all things for good for those who love you and have been called according to your purpose. So I know that this is part of all things being worked for good. I know you have a good intention in it. I know you have a good plan in it. I know you have a good end in it. I know you have good fruit to come through it. I, I really don't like this. I find it super painful. I'm very discouraged in myself. But I'm going to just help me receive this trial from you. It's just a trial, it's not the truth. It's just a trial. God receives that as profound worship. It's a beautiful, fragrant offering. It's a lot like Jesus hanging on the cross saying, Father, forgive them, but they know not what they do. Like him hanging on the cross saying, it is finished. Like him praying in Gethsemane saying, I I don't want to drink this cup, but if this is your will, I'll drink it. And we'll never be Jesus on the cross, but he does call us to pick up our cross daily and follow him through that pattern of suffering to glory. And discouragement leading to joy. Amen. So I think we should worship, and I want to exhort you. I am convinced. That your Heavenly Father is able to work everything for your good in Christ Jesus, including your trials. I'm convinced. I'm convinced God has a good motive and a good plan and will work good fruit in your every trial. And so this morning, I'm calling us to be Christian soldiers. I'm calling us to be a people who will take our emotions and try to sit them underneath a new truth. And to see what's going on, not as problems, but as trials. Not as setbacks, but as trials. Not as failures, but as trials. Not as catastrophes, but as trials. Not as disappointments, but as trials. Not as frustrations, but as trials. Would you see them as trials? Can we see them as trials? Can we see it all as trials? Maybe you say, Rob, I don't want to call something a trial that's not a trial. Why don't you fall off the fence on that side a few times instead of falling off the fence on this side? God can handle us calling something a trial that maybe he doesn't think is a trial, though I think he can see them all as trials. But why don't we see them as a trial? Why don't we learn to eat trials for breakfast? Amen? Because I can tell us, if we will learn to eat God's trials for breakfast, what can stop you Aren't you stopped by not seeing things as trials? Aren't you held back by your discouragement? Aren't you held back by thinking, God can't lead me here, and God can't meet me here, and God can't see me through this? Aren't you held back by thinking, they're the problem, and they're the problem, and they're the problem, until they're gone, nothing good can happen, until they're God, nothing good can happen, when right now, the good thing is happening. Right now, God is trying to move you to the place where you'll be most fruitful. Right now, God is trying to set you up for your destiny, to coin a phrase. Right now, God is being God over your life. If You've given your life to Him. He's accepted it as something precious. He will never be fast and loose with your soul. He will never forget you like some car keys. He cannot do this. He's the Almighty God. And He's even promised us that in our sufferings, that we are earning for ourselves a reward that will far outweigh everything. But church, please hear this. We can wrestle against the will of God. And we can frustrate the ease of his plan by hating everything he wants to do for us through trial. Let's not be that people. Let's not be that generation. Let's equip our children to see things as through the lens of trial. Young people, I wish I could tell you that everything's going to be easy in the Lord. Because I know so many parents worry that one day you're going to have pain and suffering and you're going to walk away from Jesus. You're not going to get what you want when you thought you needed it and you're going to walk away from the faith. I cannot tell you that won't happen. I can tell you it will happen. If God loves you, it will hurt sometimes. The Bible says, do not despise the Lord's discipline. He is treating you as sons. If you're not some bastard child, he's going to spank you someday. Because your soul is more precious than your temporary pleasure. Your soul's so precious to God. He already killed his son to have it. And he's not afraid to wound his daughters and sons in order to get them to where they need to be. But in the midst of it, there's never a loss of love. You never loved less during a trial. Oh, Satan, be gone. You never loved less during a trial. It's how he loves you. In a world that wants to kill you and kill your faith, trials will save you. How could he love you less in a trial when that's what's saving you? So let's worship the Lord. And let's try to get our thoughts and our hearts in a place where we can accept a trial from God. Amen? So let's stand and sing.